Today's episode is sponsored by Newspapers.com, the largest online newspaper archive. Newspapers.com makes it easy to find your family's story with more than half a billion digitized newspaper pages from the 1690s to today. Search for obituaries, marriage announcements, birth announcements, photos, and more in papers from across the United States, the UK, Canada, and beyond, stretching back three generations. For listeners of this podcast, Newspapers.com is offering 20% off a Publisher Extra subscription. Just use the code FAMILYTREEMAGAZINE at checkout. That's code FAMILYTREEMAGAZINE for 20% off Publisher Extra. Welcome to the April 2022 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. Since the 1st of April 2022, there's been a lot of focus on the newly released 1950 U.S. Census. But it's also a great time to focus on 20th century census records, because if we know where our families lived, say in 1940, it can be even easier to find them in 1950. Well, professional genealogist Gina Philibert Ortega is here to tell us why we need to become an expert in those 20th century census records. And then in our Family History Home segment, the State Records Coordinator at the Rhode Island State Archives, Richard Height, will be here to help us evaluate family stories and separate fact from fiction. In our Best Websites for Genealogy segment, Jim Erickson from Family Search is here and he will explain how you can get involved in the indexing of the 1950 census. And then we'll wrap things up at the editor's desk with Family Tree Magazine editor Andrew Cook, who will share with us some of the great highlights from the May-June 2022 issue of Family Tree Magazine. As always, there's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. First up, let's see what's going on in the world of genealogy in our Tree Talk segment with Rachel Christensen. Well, Rachel Christian is the social media editor at Family Tree Magazine, and she's here to tell us what's trending in the world of genealogy. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Lisa. So it's April of 2022, and um, there's kind of a big annual day coming up, isn't there? There is, yeah. A National DNA Day is April 25th, and it is a commemoration of the completion of the Human Genome Project, but also the discovery of the double helix. And... Uh, yeah, it's a it's a really good occasion to dig into some DNA research as well as um, purchase tests. I know that in the past, several of the major DNA testing companies have offered different sales around DNA days. So if that's something that any of our listeners are interested in, I would recommend seeing if there are any specific sales going on for DNA day. Yeah, it's a good time to shop and get a get a deal. Uh, and I imagine you guys have resources at Family Tree Magazine to help people who have tested. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, our newsletter this week, I believe this podcast will be published right before our weekly genealogy newsletter goes out. Um, our Thursday, April 21st, send will be all about DNA testing. We'll have you know tips and strategies, um, as well as how to decide what type of DNA test is best for you and your research goals. So if you're not subscribed to the Genealogy Insider, I would highly recommend it, of course. I'll um, leave a link in the show notes to the subscription page. So in addition to testing, obviously, there are a couple other ways that you can kind of celebrate DNA Day and learn more about your genetic family tree, rather. 
And one of those things is if you haven't already, you might consider uh, messaging your matches. If you've tested and uh, gotten your DNA test results back and you haven't gone through and messaged your closest matches to see if they have uh, family trees you can compare, that might be useful activity this month to see. There might be some low-hanging fruit there. You know, you might make some discoveries based off of results that you already have. So that might be one thing that our listeners could consider doing this month. Another thing is there are a variety of DNA studies. And if you haven't considered uh, joining a study, you can find DNA studies on pretty much everything. You can join studies based on surname or haplogroup, ethnicity, or surely, you know, geographic origin. So there are good lists of DNA studies on Family Tree DNA, but also on Cindy's list. And I can leave a link in the show notes to those if any of our listeners are interested. Great suggestions, a way to make better use and more use of the DNA test results that we get. Wonderful. So we'll have uh, links to all those resources in the show notes, as well as the newsletter sign up that you mentioned. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Rachel. We'll talk to you again next month. Thank you. Well, we just got our hands on the 1950 census, which is chock full of valuable information about our more recent relatives. And in fact, all of the 20th century census records are extremely important to our genealogy research. Well, Gina Philibert Ortega thinks that you should become an expert in these records. And she's about to teach a course at Family Tree University that's going to help you do just that. It's called Become a 20th Century Census Expert. And she's here today to tell us more about it. Hi, Gina. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm doing great. And of course, we're all Twitter pated about the 1950 census, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I was thinking about the fact that uh, the census records, you know, when we get into that 20th century are so much uh, richer, they have so much more than they did back in the 19th century. So uh, let's just talk about 20th century census records. Why are they so important? Why is it important to actually become an expert in them? You know, uh, you're right. They're absolutely rich in information. And I think that pretty much everyone who researches U.S. ancestors starts their genealogy research journey with 20th century census enumerations. You know, we go to our favorite website, we enter a name, a date, a place, and then we're off and running towards finding our ancestors' information. But how much do you really know about the census? You know, most researchers don't take the time to study all the columns and what they tell or don't tell us. And let's face it, learning more about our ancestors is exciting, but we often don't think about learning more about a particular record or its history. And so we ignored that. But in actuality, there's things on those 20th century censuses that some people may miss. So let me give you a personal example. As a new professional genealogist, Uh, years ago, I was researching for a client and I located her great-grandfather in the 1920 census and he was living in Colorado and he was living with his second wife. Now, he was an immigrant to the United States and he immigrated in the first decade of the 1900s and he wasn't a citizen yet as of 1920, but he had filed his first papers. So in the census in 1920, there is uh, citizenship columns, and one asks for the year of immigration, which he had there, and then your citizenship status, 
and his was PA, which meant he had filed his first papers. Okay, great. No surprises. So then I looked at the next line for his wife. She's born in Colorado. And uh, where the citizenship status column is, the year has an X. And then where it says her status, it says AL, which means alien. So I was like, what? She's a Colorado-born woman. She's a U.S. citizen, but she's an alien? So that didn't make any sense. She was a U.S. citizen. So I assumed that the census taker made a mistake, right? That must be it. But then I decided, hey, let's look into this more. So I did did some digging. I read the census enumerator instructions. Those are online. And I did some historical research, and I found that American women between 1907 and 1922, now remember, we're looking at the 1920 census, lost their U.S. citizenship when they married non-citizens. So for married women at this time, U.S. citizenship was derivative, which means that they assumed the citizenship of their husbands. Well, realizing that she was an alien... I thought about how much I had missed making assumptions about what I was seeing in the census. And that made me rethink how I was researching and how those assumptions can change what we know about an ancestor. Most of us assume we know everything about the U.S. census and that it's self-explanatory. But you know what? It's not. That's a great example And it's so easy to jump to that conclusion that, oh, it must just be a mistake. Oh, they just didn't do it right. But wow, what a terrific example of digging further and finding out that there was a backstory there. I imagine that there are a lot of people who have done the initial stuff through the the more recent census, and they, they're really anxious to go back in time. But even a seasoned researcher, I would imagine, would really benefit from going back and revisiting. Did you really get everything out of the 20th century census records that you thought you did? Would you think so? You know, absolutely. Because I, I can tell you personally, I'm always learning stuff. I mean, the 1930 census Uh, women who were wives had a little H next to them or an older daughter or mother-in-law that had to do with homemakers. That's separate from having no job in the occupation column. So uh, this is a little H that's put next to their names. There's a reason for that. But we don't know that because we're so focused on name, date, place, and placing our ancestors, which makes absolute sense. But there is so much more to the census. And whether you're new to it or not, uh, it it deserves a deeper dive. Yeah, absolutely. So um, how long is the course that you're going to be doing? Again, it's called Become a 20th Century Census Expert. How long is the course and what are students going to learn in that? So it's a four-week course. It begins April 18th and ends May 15th. And we're going to first look at the history of the census and what 20th century census enumerations contain. We're going to move on and talk about some of those columns and go beyond just the name and a date and a location and do a real deep dive into some of those columns and what they mean uh, about your ancestor. And then we're also going to take a look at social history. And how to use social history and the census to really 
know the story of your ancestor. I know that people uh, listening to this were uh, publishing in mid-April, but they can still join because this is self-paced, right? That's right. Yeah. You know what? Family Tree University courses are self-paced. You have access to the course for a year. So let's say you sign up and something, life happens, right? You know, you get sick or you travel or whatever. Well, you've got access online for a year, but in addition to that, you can download the lessons and the videos to your computer. So you have access to it forever. The only thing that you're limited to is that that four-week period Every day we're answering questions on those message boards. And so after that period, you don't have that access to the instructor, but you have access to everything else. And that's a big bonus, um, the access to the instructor. I I know when I teach the courses uh, over there, I do a couple of them, and I always encourage people, gosh, show me your working example. Show me the project, you know, because this is your chance, isn't it, to pick the brain of your instructor? Absolutely. And I do the same thing, Lisa. I always tell people, hey, now's your chance. Ask me those questions. Show me your research logs. Let's let's get those questions answered. And even if I don't know the answer, I'm going to steer you towards someone who does. So that is a huge benefit to have someone who, you know, whose expertise is a specific type of genealogy helping you. Yeah, and I love the discussion forum because uh, I know I just finished the Google Earth class. I sent an email to everybody who was in the class. I said, you got to go back and read through this discussion forum because even if you feel like, well, I'm not ready to ask a question, it's amazing how many things get solved just through those conversations. So that's very much a benefit of the whole thing. But as you said, they can download the videos, they can uh, download the PDF courses and, and continue to use it as a resource well into the future. Um, Well, terrific. Anything else they should know about the course? Yeah. uh, You know, Lisa, I think the other thing is besides the videos and the uh, lessons, uh, there's also the resources we've added to that you can download things like census blank forms, for example, and other uh, articles and forms that might be useful to you. So it is an ongoing resource. I think The census is such an important tool to our genealogy, and everybody's really excited about 1950, and and obviously we're all going to find what we want to find and, and all of that, but it's also a good time to stop and revisit those other 20th century censuses, and this is one way to get some ideas about how to do that. And if you're having a hard time finding somebody in 1950, wow, this is the perfect place to go because there's nothing like digging into the ones just prior, or actually, yeah, the ones that came prior so that you can really figure out where people are and where to look for 1950. Um, Well, it's called Become a 20th Century Census Expert. We'll have a link in the show notes to Gina's course. And even if it's already started a couple of days after, you know, as you're listening to this podcast episode, you can still join in and uh, certainly benefit from it. Gina, always great to talk to you. It sounds like a wonderful course, and have a great time with your students. Thank you, Lisa. Well, sometimes we hear stories in our genealogy research, and they may come down from the family and the relatives, but not everything turns out to be exactly as it seems. And in his recent article called Nothing But the Truth, Richard Haidt takes a look at kind of how we can go about separating 
the truth from the fiction. And he's here to talk about that today. Hi, Richard. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. And uh, so appreciate this article because I think at some point, everybody who's uh, been climbing their family tree runs into a story that maybe gets passed down the family and they find that they can't find the evidence to back it up. I'd love to know from you, what are some of the most common types of stories that get passed down through families, you know, about the family tree that maybe aren't always, you know, rooted in truth? Well, there's there's several of those. Um, One involves, you know, an ethnic identity associated with a family surname, which, um, is uh, very often, particularly for families who have been in the United States since colonial times, it will often turn out that the um, ethnic identity is not what they thought it was. You know, as an example, my father had the understanding that we were of Dutch origin. My last name is Height, spelled H-I-T-E, but it was uh, modified in this country, not surprisingly. But it's pretty easy to figure out where that tradition came from because uh, they were from Pennsylvania. Well, the term Pennsylvania Dutch actually refers to Pennsylvania Germans. And the other factor, with my grandfather having served in World War I, if he knew of German origins, he was probably not too eager to admit it. You know, other things can happen as well. For example, in my mother's side, her maiden name was Williams, which uh, she and her uh, relatives grew up with the understanding that they were of Scottish origin. And actually they were, but it was not through the surname Williams. It was uh, through a, um, another ancestor further back with the surname Carruth that had married into the family. Certainly, there are other things that come up. You know, if people in, in the course of their research, if they have the same last name as uh, someone who's relatively famous or find that in their research, there's bound to be a tradition of, the, of a relationship to the famous person with that name. In some instances, it could be true, but very often it turns out not to be. What one generation speculates on might, you know, then later be retold as fact by later generations. Uh, You know, an example I cite in the article is uh, Daniel Boone. You know, anyone with a last name Boone or someone whose mother's maiden name was Boone has probably at some point heard a tradition of a relationship to him. It's always possible, but, you know, not every Boone is related to Daniel Boone. Exactly. And these are all great examples. I know you go into them in depth in the article. And and you talk in the article about some of the steps that we can take to evaluate these family stories. Um, I'd love to have you go through these. There's four of them. What's the first step that we can take? Okay, well, first of all, address, uh, you know, and assess what you know. You know, obviously, you know, talk to as many relatives as possible, older ones in in the family. But while that's important, it's all equally important not to take everything they say as absolute fact, because it's only as good as their own memories. You know, it's important to compare these records, what they say, to what you find in actual uh, vital records or census records any uh, public records that were created at the time of the events. Some events, I mean, some records could either prove or disprove the story. 
you know, you have to think about time and place. You know, for example, um, you know, you may find stories of alleged military accomplishments by particular ancestors. Well, you know, looking at the actual military records of the particular time and the location where the ancestor lived, is it likely to be true based on that? You know, if someone was alleged to have been a military officer, well, you know, looking at looking in census records and land records, tax records for their financial status. I mean, someone who was relatively poor is highly unlikely to have been an officer. You know, if the rec- if you find a record that provides evidence that refutes the family story, you know, you have to just accept the reality. Well, maybe it was not exactly as was told. Exactly. You know, you research the history of the community the person lived in as well. Was it typical for people like your ancestor to have done what they supposedly did? It's just generally a matter of, you know, weighing the evidence and making a judgment call, you know, when available, you know, primary sources from the time of the event carry more weight than sources created afterwards, many years afterwards, or based on secondhand information. The records don't support the family story, or if they support a different version of events, you know, just consider, well, where the story might have originated. It may not have been from a reliable source. Makes sense. So the first step, I guess, is assess what you know. And, you know, you're kind of bringing us into that next second step, which is identifying the records that could prove or disprove the story. And then number three, digging into them. Um, how about number four? You, you kind of talked about this, kind of making a determination. In the end, it's it's a whole body of evidence, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's, uh, you know, you, ju- you just have to you know, consider any evidence that you're able to get to locate and, uh, you know, just weigh what's more reliable and what's less reliable. One example is, you know, okay, if you have a female ancestor whose maiden name you have not been able to determine. On death records, you know, the mother's maiden name is often included on the, um, you know, on the death certificate of, of the deceased. But, you know, one has to remember it's not the decedent himself or herself that's providing that information. It's the person who's being asked. And if that's that person's child or some other relation, they may not absolutely know the mother's maiden name. You know, if you find later on, if you find a marriage record of the deceased's parents, you know, that's a much more reliable source than from the deceased death certificate because a marriage, you know, a marriage record is a primary source from the time the event takes place. You know, someone may die a hundred years after their parents were married and, um, you know, whoever's left to tell the information on the maiden name of the deceased's mother, you know, might not have a reliable memory of that. Well, that's a great point because it could be many years that have passed and people haven't even said the name. By the time it comes back around and somebody asks the question, it could have changed in their memory and in their mind. You know, we're talking about how these oral stories are handed down the family and how we can go about kind of verifying them. Uh, but you also, in the article, talk a little bit about some of the sources for more oral histories, that there might actually be more out there to find. What are some of your, do you have a couple of favorite sources to share with us? 
Well, sure. Um, there, are, there were many, for instance, uh, county and town histories published throughout the United States, mostly from the 1870s to the 1910s, that you know, included stories about particular families in the community who, um, in some cases, I think they paid to have their story included. Now, usually the particular per- people who were alive at that time you know, the evidence is what is told in the, about those people, you know, would generally be pretty reliable because the person, uh, you know, could, uh, writing the story would have talked directly to them. And, you know, generally a person being interviewed is going to know the name and dates on their own spouse and children. But, you know, that doesn't mean it shouldn't be verified through census records and otherwise. But some of these stories will also you know, give details about the ancestors of the subjects of the article. And it chances are it's just from what that person told. You know, and they might go back to their grandparents, great-grandparents, and state where they were from. But that information is only as good as the memory of the person who's the subject of the article. You know, I would not know, you know, for instance, I would not have known without researching it who my ancestors were a hundred years before I was born. So, you know, somebody who's being written about in the 1870s is not, unless they've researched it, likely to know much about their own ancestors from the 1770s. So, you know, you can take what they what's written in these books as a starting point, but you have to keep it. You have to compare it to primary sources to determine whether it's true or not. You know, I found a, an example I cite in the article. A very you know, an uncle many generations removed of mine who had lived in Iowa. In an article about him in the county history, stated that um, his parents were from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and that he had been born there. But census records eventually prove that they were from Bedford County, Pennsylvania, which is about 200 miles west of Bucks County. But the census record was by far the more accurate source. And, you know, the estate record of his father in Bedford County, you know, proved that this was, in fact, where the family was from. You know, there was no, no, there's no evidence that they ever had any tie to Bucks County. Exactly. You know, these are all just <laughs> great examples of why genealogy is such a fascinating uh, endeavor. And I think that everybody will really enjoy this article. It's nothing but the truth, separating truth and fiction in family stories and the tips in three really interesting case studies. Um, Richard, thank you so much for um, sharing not only your stories, but some of the, the wonderful strategies that you have. And we're wishing the best to everybody who's trying to separate fact from fiction. I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you for the opportunity. So the 1950 U.S. federal census was released by the National Archives just a short time ago on April 1st, 2022. But it was just a release of the digitized images of the census pages. The indexing of those records happens afterwards. And it's really the indexing that makes it possible, of course, for all of us to be able to search the records and find our families. So here to tell us about that really important indexing project to get all this done is Jim Erickson, and he is from 
Family Search, and they are heading up this project. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you, Lisa. It's wonderful to be here with you today. I am so thrilled that you're able to take a few minutes out. I know you guys are so busy. You know, you're right on the heels of Roots Tech just wrapped up. Now we're right here with the U.S. federal census for 1950. So when it's re- when it was released, did you get all the images? And we know that the National Archives archives released them. Does that mean instantaneous publication on FamilySearch.org? How did that work initially? Well, this was so ten years ago um, in in 2012 when they released the 1940 census. We were actually waiting at the National Archives with a van and, and hard drives um, to, to transfer all of the data onto hard drives and to take them to our data uh, facility in Virginia. Um, this time, everything was available online. So everything was uh, downloaded and uploaded to our servers um, immediately. Um, they made that available. There was high demand. So that was one of the challenges that we faced, was making sure that we were going to be able to download those images. Uh, over six uh, million images is a lot of images to, to be able to, to download. Um, and those images include records for 151 million people. So that's a lot of information um, at high quality um, resolution. So, so that was actually the first hurdle. And since we were doing this project, um, since we are doing this project with Ancestry, um, we also had to wait for Ancestry to do the same thing and download the images to be able to process them to create their computerized index with their own handwriting recognition technology that then came to us and makes it so much easier to uh, review an index as opposed to starting with transcription from scratch. So there are so many innovations that have taken place, but from the National Archives, the online delivery of the images was one of those innovations. How fantastic to be able to do that online. I, I can imagine that speeding it up. And then you've got artificial intelligence, which is already impacting um, how we use genealogy websites, how we access digitized books, and, and here you are using it um, to, to help index the records. So give us an idea. I'd love to know kind of a comparison between the speed at which you indexed 1940, which I thought was pretty darn quick, to how that looks for 1950. That is a great question, and we're still learning how this is going to play out with the 1950 census. So the 1940 census, well, actually, let me go back. Um, so one of the first projects that we did as Family Search when we were publishing CD-ROMs was the 1880 census. The 1880 census took us more than a decade to press onto CD-ROM. That was a huge project, um, and it was crowdsourced. But, but before the advent of the Internet, it was sending... Um, packets and and physical papers around and then gathering them and then creating a CD-ROM. So we went from a project like that um, to doing the 1940 census, uh, you know, just over a decade later in a matter of about six months. So already the technology was, was 
was just astounding um, what you're able to do just because of the internet. Um, now you have the artificial intelligence and the handwriting character recognition and and you have innovations that we're doing with the crowdsourcing and all of a sudden you're able to take those tasks that were all human um, I guess bounded by human capabilities and the need to have all these uh, people helping and you're now allowing the computer to do what the computer can do so with the 1950 census we are actually indexing or reviewing this automated index for every single field that was captured in the 1950 census. So it's way more data than we were dealing with with 1940. 1940, because of the cost and the time, um, we just wanted to make sure that we just had the most genealogically relevant fields captured. So occupation and, and some of those fields were seen as kind of extra fields. Um, but for 1950, we recognize that we can do a lot more in terms of the experiences that we can provide and that these other entities can provide um, if we have a full index. So that's one of the, the big innovations. So it's going really well, um, and we have a goal to get it all done by Flag Day. So that's June 14th. So that will be about about really two months from when we really got the project going um, and kind of came up to speed to its conclusion, if we can get there. Um, and that just depends on how many people come and participate. Um, there's more than one way to participate. So we feel like we have a lot of options and it's more accessible um, than it's ever been because of how recent it is. Recognizing handwriting from 1950s is not that different from recognizing handwriting from a week ago. It, you know, things haven't changed that dramatically. And so it's, it's a really accessible experience. And these are people that everybody knows. So it's kind of fun to come in and, and uh, see what you can find in those areas where your family is from. Exactly. Before we talk about how people can kind of get involved in the project, you know, you said something which I, I hope that uh, everybody listening and watching really appreciates, which is every field. I mean, you must have gotten excited when you heard that that was really going to be possible. I know, just hearing it myself, I'm like, that's a game changer, because now you can slice and dice data in so many ways. You can look up everybody who worked on the railroad or everybody who, you know, whatever the fields are that were filled out. Uh, what do you think the impact? Will that change anything about genealogy research? Yes, it will. Um, and not just genealogical research, but understanding the makeup of our country in 1950 um, and really understanding the, the history of our nation, um, because that is part of your family history, um, is enabled by capturing those additional fields. So being able to see, um, you know, differences in income, um, differences in occupation from region to region, um, being able to easily see neighborhoods. Um, the address for the 1950 census is similar to the 1940 census in that it's a vertical capture down the side of the, the forms. Mm -hmm. um, so that is something that just allows people to see what's there today, if their house is still there. I mean, these are experiences that, that we've dreamed of 
But without the index, it's impossible to provide that, that sort of a, an experience. And so now with the commercial entities and what we're trying to do, you're going to have a lot of different experiences now that are unlocked and available um, because of these innovations and especially um, what Ancestry's en enabled us to do with this uh, computer-aided index that they've created. Since you're partnering together, is it available at Ancestry for free as well as for FamilySearch? Um, Ancestry will make their own business decisions, but yes, initially it'll be available for free. Um, they've opened up the 1940 census recently, and that, that's been available for free. Um, I don't know what all their future plans are, um, sure. but it allows them a lot of flexibility on, on how, to, how, to, how to do that. Of course, um, we make everything we can available for free at FamilySearch. And, uh, and this is, uh, again, there's going to be a lot of different experiences that are available um, around this record set. And so it's exciting, going all the way back to how the National Archives made it available. It's really democratizing the, the records and allowing people. I think their goal is to just make it accessible to as many people as possible. And then it's these other organizations that, that have a vision for, for what they can do with those records. Yes, and you guys certainly have the vision around the indexing project. That's something that is such a skill that you've all developed and really um, fine-tuned. You've been able to crowdsource so much of what then becomes available to everybody. So tell folks how they can get involved. And, I, and I'm really interested in some of the changes. I was very excited to hear that people will be able to have, in a way, a more personal indexing experience. Tell folks about that. Yeah, so something that everybody wants to do when they come in and volunteer and get involved in a project is to find their own family. Now, this, just because of how quickly we're trying to get it done, that will be expedited. So when the index is published and available um, after it's been reviewed, everybody's going to have that wonderful experience. Um, but even on the review side, we've made it so people can search for a specific location down to the county level or in some cases down to the city level. And then you can actually search for a surname um, a last name within that location. Now, if your family hasn't already been reviewed, you'll be able to review it. If it has been reviewed, well, that just means that it's going to be published sooner um, because progress has already been made. Um, and then you can come back and review it. And if for some reason the person who reviewed it did it wrong, you can still make corrections. We do corrections on family search. Ancestry does corrections on Ancestry. And we are sharing whatever corrections are made on FamilySearch with Ancestry so they can get the benefit of any corrections that are made um, on our website as well. So for the 1940 census, we had 163,000 people come and help and get involved. And with how easy it is for 1950, we think that we'll have well over 200,000 people who will come and, and uh, want to review these names. So if you want to get involved... Um, there are a couple different places you can go, but the easiest place to remember is FamilySearch.org slash 1950Census. Um, and on that page, there's a lot of information, but near the top of the page, there's a big link um, to uh, join the project and to come over and, and participate. The project is ongoing, 
Um, there are uh, all, all the states are, are there. Some have already been published. Um, but, but come and get involved and see what you can do. Um, it's going very quickly. It's, uh, people are really enjoying it. And uh, we're glad that it's coming along as quickly as it is. So familysearch.org slash 1950census. Terrific. And, and Jim, they can do this from home, from their computer. Um, is there a certain minimum um, commitment that they have to make or a certain minimum amount of technological ability? So this is, again, one of the things that's kind of fun. Um, I, I mentioned it briefly before. There's actually more than one experience or way to participate. Um, the, the standard way that most people who've done it before want to participate is what we call the household review. The household review, um, we try to identify from the head of the house, all the members of the household or the family, to the next head of the house. And that can sometimes cross um, pages on the, the census forms. Um, and that is a, an every field review. And you can come in because of how it's set up now. You can review as many of those fields as you want. And then the next person can come and pick up where you left off. So that, that's really fun. Now, that does require you to be on a computer. The other task, well, there's two other tasks, but another one that doesn't require you to be on a computer, you can be on your handheld device, um, your smartphone, um, is what we call name review. So instead of reviewing all of the fields, um, you can download our app called Get Involved. So Family Search Get Involved. It's available on the the iTunes store, the, the Apple store, as well as uh, from Google, um, the Android store. And uh, you can download the app, and, uh, and you can just start looking at the images where we have the names of the people in the census, and then you can compare that with what the computer thinks it is. And you can either say, yes, that's right, or you can actually enhance or fix um, what the name is. And that you can do hundreds of these in an hour. Um, I've done it. It's a fun activity. It's really engaging. And if you like seeing that you're making a difference in terms of volume, um, it's a really fun way to participate. Um, again, the computer doesn't always get it right, so you have to be really careful in the review process. But it's super easy to just look at the image and look at the, the indexed value um, for the name and just make sure it's right. So, so it's really easy, and you can do that online as well. Um, you don't have to have the app. And then the third task, so there's the household review or the family review, the name review, and then the other one is the header review. So every census image, every uh, census ledger has a header that includes all of the location information and the information about the enumeration itself. And that's a separate task. And we broke that one out because, again, it's uh, the data is formatted differently. So if you want to go in and help us, those have to be done as well. Uh, to be able to to publish the the data set, so we'd invite you to come in and see what states um, still have the the header review available, and to help us finish out that as well. It's not for a lot of people. It's not as exciting because it doesn't include the names of the people, um, but it still has to be done to be able to publish the reviewed index. 
I hadn't thought about the header, but boy, that's pretty important. If that's not right, then we get way off track pretty quickly. So uh, that includes our enumeration district number, the county number. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Jim, it sounds like you guys have really been innovating over at FamilySearch. We're grateful. We're grateful that you're giving everybody watching an opportunity to also give back a little bit. And we can all pull together and get this done by Flag Day. That sounds pretty great. So it's FamilySearch.org slash 1950Census. And uh, Jim, again, thank you so much. And I sure hope we'll talk again even before the 1960 census, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. Well, it's time to stop by the editor's desk. And today we're talking to the editor of Family Tree Magazine, Andrew Cook. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Lisa. Well, it looks like the, the May-June issue of the magazine is already out, and it, you're going to give us a little bit of a preview of what we're going to be reading about, right? Yeah, and you know, I say this about every issue, but I am very excited for this issue in particular. Um, I know in the last couple episodes of the podcast, we've been talking a lot about the U.S. Census, and uh, kind of following from that, our May-June issue has a cover story all about the 1950 census, and it is our complete 1950 census guide. And within that cover story, we've got a detailed list of questions that were asked, tips for searching or browsing records on sites like FamilySearch and Ancestry, particularly if um, you're not having any luck with the index that rolled out with the census at launch, and a record extract worksheet that um, allows you to record your family's entry on the census for your records. Perfect. Yeah, this is a, a must-have, I think, <laughs> this issue for anybody who's going to be digging into the, the 1950 sentences. And of course, there's lots of other great articles too, right? Yeah, yeah. And here's just kind of a, a quick hits. We've got a guide to the records of the Freedmen's Bureau, which Ancestry.com made more widely available last year. Uh, we had Richard Height on earlier this uh, episode to talk about his feature article in the May-June issue on separating fact from fiction and family stories. We've got a look back at investigative genetic genealogy and how DNA is being used to solve crimes like the Golden State Killer case. And of course, Lisa, you were nice enough to write a feature for us for this issue on creating a home or master family tree on desktop software uh, and then selectively syncing that out with online trees. Yeah, absolutely. It's, It's a question we get a lot and we dig right into it in that article. And in addition to all of that, I saw a really cool cheat sheet tucked right in the middle all about land records. And I love land records. So this this is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was a, a great piece to work on. I learned a lot while working on it. It's always great when, uh, it, you know, I get to learn something while I work. And um, land records, I think, are really puzzling for a lot of people, but are so valuable. They really, really are. And, and this cheat sheet is a huge help. Okay, so all of this is jam-packed into the May-June issue of Family Train Magazine. Um, Thank you so much, Andrew. It's awesome, and, and we'll be talking to you again next month. Yep, great talking to you, Lisa. Thank you for joining me for this April 2022 episode of the Family Train Magazine podcast, the podcast from America's number one genealogy magazine. As always, I'll have links on the show notes page to everything that we talked about today. You can find the show notes at familytreemagazine.com slash podcasts. 
And if you're listening to the show through uh, a podcast app like Apple or Google Podcasts, we'd love it if you do us a big favor, leave a five-star rating in the reviews and ratings area of the podcast app. That really helps other people find the show, and we do appreciate that. Thanks again for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and you can visit me at my website, genealogygems.com. There you'll find links to my Genealogy Gems podcast and the Genealogy Gems YouTube channel. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. Today's episode is sponsored by Newspapers.com, the largest online newspaper archive. Newspapers.com makes it easy to find your family's story with more than half a billion digitized newspaper pages from the 1690s to today. Search for obituaries, marriage announcements, birth announcements, photos, and more in papers from across the United States, the UK, Canada, and beyond, stretching back three generations. For listeners of this podcast, Newspapers.com is offering 20% off a Publisher Extra subscription. Just use the code FAMILYTREEMAGAZINE at checkout. That's code FAMILYTREEMAGAZINE for 20% off Publisher Extra.